Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And Nikki, today we're going to look at that iconic story of the three worthies, as Ellen called them, who are going to be summoned to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar builds. And we're going to talk about the first 18 verses of chapter 3 from Daniel, where this whole image is built and the summons goes out to people. But Nikki, as an Adventist, what did you think of the story? What did you know about it? I believed that Nebuchadnezzar had made a law for all of the people in his kingdom to come and worship this idol. And I could not figure out why Daniel wasn't there. Right. Because Daniel was a part of his kingdom. And I imagined that it was families and just regular old people who lived in Babylon who had to come Mm -hmm. and bow down to this image or face the furnace, and that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. And I couldn't understand how they were the only three who refused when you had so many Jewish people living in that place. They were like the remnant Right. But then why wasn't Daniel there? Because we know Daniel was faithful to the end. So that was a little confusing to me. Dare to be a Daniel. Yeah. (laughs) And be absent from the image. (laughs) Hide. (laughs) Run to the hills. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. So that was kind of what I thought of it. I really enjoyed studying this and getting some of that straightened up. Me too. I had the same idea. You know, it's an interesting thing because there's a lot of details that we've sort of come up with as we've looked at this that I hadn't ever thought of before or haven't really noticed. They make a big difference in the way I see the big picture, even though they're not terribly big details in terms of the story itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big change for me. Every single chapter, every single portion of a chapter that we do in this book together Mm -hmm. as part of this podcast, it's like I'm seeing it in a new way for the first time. My confusion also was in that same area. I had no idea that the people who were called to bow down to this image were a limited group. I thought it was everybody who lived in Babylon, mothers, fathers, children, and it didn't ever dawn on me that what the words say is what the words mean, you know? Yeah, or that there were clues in the words that answered some of those questions. Yeah. You know, they're not so mysterious. You just actually have to read from the Bible and not (laughs) Arthur Maxwell. There is the key. Because as you said to me, you remembered looking at the picture in the Bible stories. And Richard says he remembers this picture too. He remembers just pondering it. And I do remember the picture, but I think it really impacted you and Richard in a Mm -hmm. particular way. And tell what you thought about it. Yeah, well, just to clarify, I went and looked for it online trying to find out what book this was in. And I can't say for sure that I know this was Arthur Maxwell. But it was in my Adventist childhood that I saw the picture. Uh And in the photo, or not photo, in the painting, you had, it kind of took over two pages. And on the right side of the page, I remember Nebuchadnezzar on a balcony in his palace overlooking a courtyard where you could see people bowing down to a golden statue. And then on the right side of the page, there was a furnace and you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace with Jesus. And just before it, you had the fallen soldiers. 
Yes. And I would just stare at this picture. I think one of the reasons it was so impacting to me is I don't remember anyone actually reading me these stories. I just had them around in my life and I would sit and stare at the pictures before I could read. Oh, that's so important, Nikki. We've talked about this before. Adventism teaches its children Adventism from babyhood, not just through the words, but through the pictures of all those religious books Adventism produces for children. Yeah. And, and, you know, this whole picture might seem completely insignificant. And in a way, I guess it it is because it's just somebody's imagination of what it all looked like. But here's the thing. Scripture, which we'll see, clearly tells us that this image was in a plane. It was mm-hmm. in a field. It wasn't in a courtyard. Right. And in all of the pictures that I did find when I went online looking for this particular one, other illustrators showed that it was in a plane, in a field. Isn't that fascinating? And I thought, wow, you know, all these other Christians picked up on this, but we just stuck it in a courtyard surrounded by buildings and the palace and... And the dead soldiers. (laughs) Yeah, which, you know, I, I don't know how to explain what's disturbing about that to me, except to say that I think a lot of our understanding of the things that happen in Scripture come from our culture, our tradition, our prophetess, more than clearly reading through the Bible. I mean, for crying out loud, we had no idea Adam was with Eve when she ate the apple. No, you're absolutely right about that. And I think the thing that's so interesting is that the way Adventism teaches its doctrines and its worldview to its children and to its new converts Mm -hmm. really is a lot of pictures, whether it's word pictures or whether it's painted pictures. But the point is, it's extremely inside out from the Christian worldview. It makes man the center. It makes humans and their reactions all about the story. The story is all about what the humans do. The Bible is really telling us all about what God is doing. And it sounds like a nitpick, but it's a completely different focus. Yeah, it's it's more a tip of the hand. Yeah. It's revealing their source of authority. That's exactly right. So let's read verses 1 through 18 of Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and man of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. 
You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made? Very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So, Nikki, I have a question. Who set up the image? (laughs) (laughs) You think maybe it was King Nebuchadnezzar? (laughs) It's interesting how often they repeated that because you know he didn't himself personally set it up. That's true. (laughs) That's really an interesting thing. Right up front, in the very first verse, it tells us the dimensions of this image. Now, in our particular units of measure, what are 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide? What does that equal? Well, thanks to the internet, I discovered (laughs) that that's 90 feet high and 9 feet thick. So there you have it, a huge golden edifice. Uh, That's a lot of gold. Yeah. I wonder if it was gold plate. We aren't told, but (laughs) still, it's gold. Mm -hmm. So Nebuchadnezzar sends word out after he has set up this huge golden image. And who does he ask to be assembled? And I think this is so interesting because right here is where the details start to differ from the way I understood the story. Yeah. Well, he he sent word to all of the people who were in his employment. I mean, these were satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the rulers. You know, some of these words were new to me. So I looked them up Uh and it's essentially made up of a lot of people who are charged with keeping the law. I mean, counselors could have been lawyers. True. And you had judges Mm -hmm. and the magistrates act as a judge, Mm -hmm. but usually in matters like with lower crime. And the prefects, they could have been government police. What's interesting to me here is that these are rulers. These are people who have authority over the common citizens. And another part of this that was interesting to me is the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication. Now, it frequently refers to the province of Babylon. So there's more than the province of Babylon represented here. What we're looking at is an accumulation of the leaders of all of the districts, all of the provinces that Nebuchadnezzar is taking under his control as he marches through the 
Middle East and taking control and forming the Babylonian Empire. This is not a set of words describing just the people who lived in Babylon. Yeah, it wasn't just a single culture. No. It was the combining of multiple cultures. That he is conquering as he goes through the world and tears down existing kingdoms. So Judah was just one of the nations that he had invaded. And we know that that first invasion was 605 BC when he had taken Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and other Jews of noble birth. We know that the second one came in 597 and Jerusalem was finally destroyed forever, flattened, temple destroyed in 586. So there were three successive invasions that Nebuchadnezzar did just of Judah the kingdom of Judah. So there were other nations he was conquering too. We're looking at a call for his leaders and rulers of all of the parts of the world that he was now in charge of, that he was the suzerain king over these conquered nations. And you know, I can't help but think about the fact that that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, among many others, had to go through three years of training and then oral exam in front of the king. And then he determined what he was going to do with them. I don't know that that was the case for everybody, but he was clearly heavily involved in educating the people he was conquering, making sure they were getting educated and making sure they knew their stuff before he would promote them is the word we keep reading. Right, right. Now, we have just read in chapter two that Daniel... And the three friends had prayed to God when the king needed somebody to tell him the meaning of a dream, and he insisted that they tell him what the dream was before he would accept their interpretation, because otherwise he wasn't sure that they would be lying. Mm -hmm. So if somebody could come and tell him the dream and the interpretation, then he would have more confidence that they were telling him the truth. And Daniel had done that because God had revealed it to him. And at the end of chapter 2, we had read that he had promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be the leaders in the province of Babylon, and Daniel he took into his own personal court. So Daniel was like next to the king. He was a personal advisor in the king's court, apparently. And the three men in this story are over the province of Babylon. So they have been promoted rather soon in Nebuchadnezzar's reign of terror, if you want to call it that, as he conquers the world. What's really surprising to me about this is that the purpose of this image was much, much bigger than I learned as a kid in Sabbath school. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing with this image? What's the purpose of it? What do we learn from the words here? So he invited them to come to the dedication of the image. Mm-hmm. And then he required them <laughs> to worship the image when they heard the music. Right. Now, I think this word dedication is a hint. And I had never thought of it this way until I'll give the credit to the late J. Vernon McGee, whose commentary on this passage was really insightful to me. Obviously did not come from an Adventist background. (laughs) He had three things that he listed Nebuchadnezzar doing by the making of this image and the requiring of these leaders to come on the plane and worship it. And this is what he said. The first thing we can say for sure about Nebuchadnezzar making this image is that it shows Nebuchadnezzar is rebelling against God. And we know he's actually rebelling because God had given him Judah and the temple, and those brilliant and gifted 
Hebrew youth that he was training. And the previous chapter, he had just had the vision interpreted to him by Daniel, and he had extolled the God of heaven, the God of the Hebrews, and said, he is the God of kings, the Lord of kings. So, Nebuchadnezzar had encountered God, and he knew that Daniel and his friends worshipped him. So, when Nebuchadnezzar turns around and decides to construct a colossus of gold, representing apparently himself or his Babylonian gods, but at any rate, representing Babylon, the power of Babylon, he is rebelling against God whom he has already acknowledged as knowing the future. The second thing Dr. McGee said is that this is a representation of incredible pride. We have Nebuchadnezzar self-deifying. He's asking people to bow down and worship this representation of Babylon and himself as Babylon's head. That's clearly part of this. And then the third thing, and this was the part that was really interesting and logical, and I had never thought of it before, it was a unifying principle for him to ask all of these people, and we learn that it wasn't just Babylonians, because in verse 7, we read this. At that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. We learn there that these leaders, these satraps and counselors and magistrates that he had called together, represented many nations, tongues, and people. So, these were clearly the leaders that he was appointing to leadership position out of the conquered nations he was amassing. So, he was organizing them. And as Dr. McGee put it, this is the beginning of his brainwashing. This was part of his Babylonizing these nations. They will worship my God. They will worship me. They will worship my nation and my empire. And they will be my subjects. He is establishing a totalitarian government, and a totalitarian religion. And he's calling all of these conquered people who are leading the people under them into this plain of Dura to worship this symbol of Babylon. It's one of those strange situations of control and abuse where he's taking people he has made his slaves. He's flattering them by saying, I'm promoting you to a position of power. And now he's turning the other hand and saying, and now you will worship me. Kind of sounds like a cult. (laughs) It does have a familiar feel. (laughs) But he knew that if he got these leaders to worship him and Babylon and be loyal, they would teach the people. And that's the part that I'd missed from this story, one of the big parts. Mm -hmm, Me too. There was a political point to this. Mm -hmm. This wasn't just, oh, I'm going to establish a false religion. He was establishing a world dominion. There was a lot of history that we didn't get in Adventism. Absolutely. It seems like we heard the Bible stories in the context of the great controversy worldview rather than in the context of history. Right. And learning from Gary what was going on at that time and how King Nebuchadnezzar came to power and what he was doing in the world really helped with that setting that we talked about in the introduction. If you guys haven't heard that yet, it's really interesting. 
go back and listen to that. Yeah. We didn't have that context. No. And it changes the story for me. Mm-hmm. And one last thing that I want to mention that was a brand new thought to me was the idea that Nebuchadnezzar and his image in Babylon and his forcing everybody to worship was a reflection of the power of the Tower of Babel. When the people after the flood amassed themselves onto the plain of Shinar, which is where Babylon was, and built a tower to make a name for themselves. And God had to actually separate them by the physical act of destroying their language unity and sending them out into the world so they would populate the earth and not just be one congregate group of people with one religion and one political power. This is a reflection of that. Nebuchadnezzar is reviving that sort of Babylonian power. And this was a really interesting thought that S. Lewis Johnson spoke about in his sermon on this chapter. This is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist in Revelation, who will have an image to himself built, and he will demand that the whole earth worship the image to himself the image to the beast. So I just found that to be a fascinating thread of continuity between Genesis and Revelation. And here in the book of Daniel, we have this personification of all of this power in the person of Nebuchadnezzar and in his amazing colossus of gold and his demand that all these people he's conquered worship him and his nation and his gods. And a parallel thread too, I think, is seeing God's provision for his people in the midst of that, which we'll really get into more next week. And I think that's a a really important point because God does not allow people to rise to power. Well, he, he sets up the kings and he changes the times and the epochs as we learned in Daniel's prayer. But he doesn't allow this without also holding them accountable. And when evil powers have dominated the people of the earth, God will ultimately punish them and bring them to repentance or to acknowledgement of who he is. He keeps his people safe, no matter what they go through. As we learn, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will say later, even if God's people die in the process, they are eternally secure. They never have to fear. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the fact that the words used for some of these instruments were Greek words. Yeah. And I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that there are critics who say that Daniel wasn't written until after the time of Alexander the Great, just simply because it's far too accurate. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So they say these Greek words are evidence of this. But the fact is that there was cultural influence, Greek cultural influence, long before the time of Nebuchadnezzar in that area. Even there are Assyrian inscriptions, and we remember Assyria was the nation that took the northern kingdom like a hundred years before Babylon came and took Judah. Even the Assyrians had inscriptions using Greek words for certain musical instruments long before Nebuchadnezzar. And I thought it was interesting in my um, study notes in my NASB, it said the words for the instrument lyre, psaltery, which is a kind of harp, and bagpipe, those were Greek. And they're the only Greek borrowed words in the whole book of Daniel, just those instruments. I kind of wonder if these instruments represent different parts of the countries that he conquered. 
That's interesting, actually. Nowadays, when you think bagpipes, you think of Ireland or Scotland, right? right? Uh So I don't know if that's just another clue or another piece of evidence that these are many different peoples who've come together. And the fact that even the Assyrians used these words or used words for Greek instruments does suggest that there was some kind of widespread influence Mm -hmm. of early Greek culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, which, of course was missing from my Adventist story. One of the things about this business of the instruments and the music that's so interesting to me about this is that it wasn't just that he said he called in the trumpets and had them play a long note of call to worship and they all bowed down when they heard the trumpet. No, he named at least six instruments and then said, and all kinds of music, which could suggest anything, voices, Um, different groups. And it doesn't mean necessarily just one loud note of call. This suggests that Nebuchadnezzar was using music as a part of the worship of the image. In other words, like we think of church and we think of music as part of the worship experience, Nebuchadnezzar in his pagan context also seemed to be doing that. And I think this is a really important point because the kind of music that we use in our worship services absolutely sets the tone for the kind of worship we will do. If we are listening to music that's rich in doctrinal truths about God, if we're singing the truth of God back to Himself, if we're singing about the gospel, if we're singing biblical truth, we are honoring the God we love and serve. And it sets us up to hear the words spoken well. But if we're listening to music which is not honoring the truth, which is basically experience-driven, which might be even a form of trance music designed to put us into an altered state, which it wouldn't surprise me at all if this music on the plane of Dura was doing that. Mm -hmm. If we're listening to that sort of thing or participating in something where we're looking for a spiritual experience that's separate from the words of truth, we're setting ourselves up for influences from things we may not even know. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite little clips of a sermon came from Alistair Begg, who said, when someone comes to your church service, if they can only stay for the worship, the musical worship, and then they have to leave, they ought to have heard the gospel during that time. Your music has to reflect the message that will save their life. Right. And you know, it's important too, what we put into our minds, because Music has the power to take concepts, truths, or untruths and plant them deeply into our memories. I'm sure it's not a surprise to most people, but there's been a lot of research that shows that people with dementia, even fairly advanced Alzheimer's, where people cannot hold conversations anymore, cannot recall names, cannot recall details of their lives. If someone comes and begins singing to them music that they knew from their past, these people can actually be like reached. They can come out of their cloister inside their heads where they're locked away and they can begin to sing. And I've known of people who had visitors who were singing hymns to them as they were close to death in a demented state. And when the hymns started to be sung in their presence, these people could actually recall the hymns and sing along. Those truths about God go deeply into our minds with music. It's like they get stored in a different part of the brain. 
And those things never leave. And isn't it interesting that Paul tells us in Colossians to sing and make music to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs? There's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. It's praising God, it's honoring God, and it's embedding in our own minds in a way different from spoken word, the truths of God. And if we are putting falsehood in our minds, that stays there too, in the same way. And we don't always know where it comes from. No, we don't. And you know, this This also explains why some of the sight word songs they give kids in, in kindergarten to teach them how to spell those difficult English words. They put it to music and it just clicks. Multiplication songs, songs about the various states and their capitals. Music just helps. And I can't help but think about Arius, the song he wrote to teach that Jesus was not eternal God. That's true. There's a story that Arius wrote a song to teach children that Jesus was not eternal, sovereign God, that he had a beginning. Now, that's part of this story that I think is so interesting is that Athanasius, who famously opposed Arius and vigorously taught the biblical truth about Jesus, Athanasius wrote a contrary song which we still sing today to teach the truth about God, is the song that we might know as the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And that is the song Athanasius wrote in like the 4th century to counter Arius's heresy. And just by the way, J.N. Andrews died in Arian. That's a really important point. I just think we should throw that in there. But yeah, music is very influential. It's very important. God designed us to respond to music. So, it's no wonder that Adventists, and indeed all the cults actually, have their own music, their own hymnals. Now, those of us who grew up Adventist, we learned basically, essentially, the hymns of the faith. What we didn't know was that often those hymns were changed. The words were changed and altered. But even more specifically, Adventism has certain songs that were written for Adventism. And some of those are included in the Adventist hymnal. Now, I looked up in my copy of the Seventh-day Adventist hymnal, which was copyrighted in 1984, I believe it was. And I believe it's the one that's still being used today although I've heard rumors that there is a new one that's being thought to be published, but I haven't heard anything definitive about that. There are, in this hymnal, under the topical index, I counted 17 songs about the Sabbath. (laughs) Some of these I actually used to sing in church as a child. But some of these are actually written by Adventists for Adventists, and you can tell they are because, well, you can see the dates of the writers of the words, but you can tell from the words. Now, I'm going to just share with you a verse from one called, Dear Lord, We Come at Set of Sun. This is number 392 in the Adventist hymnal, and here's the first verse. Dear Lord, We come at set of sun, and at your feet we kneel to worship you, Creator, King, this day, get this, your sign and seal. Who but an Adventist would say that? But you teach this to your congregation, and it will be in their heads, and they will believe it, and they won't even know exactly how they got it in there. You think about being a child standing in an Adventist worship service, Hearing the adults singing these words, 
waiting for children's story, (laughs) and you see everyone that you trust to tell you the truth saying these things. So how could it be anything but true? Absolutely. Here's one I remember singing in church, just like you described, next to my parents as a child. This one is called Holy Sabbath Day of Rest, and the first verse and chorus go this way. Holy Sabbath, day of rest, by our Master richly blessed. God created and divine. Do you notice that? God created and and divine. divine. The Sabbath is divine. Set aside for holy time. Nikki, what's holy in the New Covenant? We don't have anything holy in the New Covenant. I mean, we have the Lord's Supper. We have the... The act of baptism, we have the congregation of the church, which is considered a holy priesthood, people for God's own possession, but we don't have a temple, we don't have the holy of holies, we don't have all of these physical things. That's right. And while time isn't physical in the sense that you can touch it, it is a part of God's physical creation. That's right. It's a created thing. Time is not holy in the New Covenant. The song goes on from the phrase, set aside for holy time, to the chorus. Yes, the holy Sabbath rest by our God, divinely blessed. It to us a sign shall be throughout all eternity. Now, we learned that, didn't we? Yeah. That we will keep the Sabbath in heaven with God forever, and that He keeps the Sabbath. Just like even before yeah. we were created. Exactly. The Ten Commandments is eternal in both directions in the Great Controversy worldview. And God, get the implication of this, is subject to the law. God is subject to the Sabbath. No, He made the Sabbath and gave it to Israel. He did not make it, as even some of these songs declare, at creation. You know, I'm not saying this to shame anybody. God leads us out in His time and in His way. But this is one of the reasons I would tell a former Adventist that it's not good for them to attend Adventist church services with their family. Because when they stand up and they sing this, they're affirming it with the congregation. That's right. Even if they're changing the meaning in their own head, what is your corporate witness? That's right. And even if it's a Sabbath where they're not singing one of these songs. Right. They're affirming it by being there and worshiping, so to speak, with their Adventist family. You know, I want to say to people who say, well, I'm going to go for my family. I want to say, if your family were still attending a Buddhist temple or a Mormon temple, would you go? Or if they were in a burning building, would you go sit with them or would you take them out and tell them it's safer out here? Yeah. So I just wanted to mention all that because music connected with worship is no accident. It's not an, oh yeah, let's add a little music to give it a little bit of programmatic flavor. Music has a purpose and a power and is part of worship by God's design. And false worship will use music for false purposes. You know, it's interesting to me that Satan really has no creative power. He has no ability to come up with something that's altogether original. He can only copy what God has done. It's not a surprise that Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden image and has music to help all of his international conquests get into the mood to worship him. 
So since you bring up Satan and we're talking about Adventist teaching, can you clarify whether or not there's any biblical evidence that Satan was the choir director who could sing all parts? (laughs) Isn't that an interesting one? No, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that. Okay. But I certainly learned it. Yeah. Sang four-part harmony with his own voice box and was the choir director in heaven. Mm -hmm. No, no, that is not in the Bible. So back to Daniel, I found it very interesting in verse 8 that it says, For this reason at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And we talked about the fact that when Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel, Daniel made the request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon, while Daniel was at the king's court. So this helps me understand why Daniel wasn't necessarily present for this yeah, and why there were only three Jews that we know about who were. And isn't it interesting that God put faithful Jews in a position to end this command before it trickles down to the rest of Israel? Oh, I never thought of it that way, Nikki. That is so interesting. And it's such a provision of God that he did this. But this happened, like you said, relatively soon after all of that. Well, yeah. we talked last week about the fact that when Daniel went in to interpret this dream, this was only his second year in university. I don't know what to call it. It was only the Babylon se- U. Yeah. It was only his second year of training. So these are young men. These are mm-hmm. middle school men, maybe high school yeah. age young men who were now placed over the Chaldeans. Oh, wow. And so when I think of these certain Chaldeans, I want to say, they might be the bitter ones yeah. who are required to be submissive to these kids yeah. that Nebuchadnezzar's now put over them. And it, it makes me think of the the kid in the classroom, teacher, teacher, yeah. <laughs> so-and-so's cheating. I don't know. I can't prove it, but I can't help but wonder if there wasn't a little bit of um, vindictiveness behind this. I think you may be correct in that, especially since they name them so that it's very specifically about the three. They were familiar with who they were. Mm -hmm. They weren't just three men. Oh, King, King, look over there, three people. No, this is specific. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting, like you mentioned, there aren't other Jews present that we know of, at least none that are breaking the law here. And that's likely because They weren't all promoted to these positions of leadership like Daniel and these three were. These are just in the group of leaders that Nebuchadnezzar has appointed, which is a really interesting thing when you think about what God has been doing since the beginning of bringing Daniel and these three out of Judah. He has been guarding them, protecting them, directing their lives and their their courage and their faith so that they will have these positions of leadership. And when you think about it that way, Nikki, isn't it fascinating that he's put these three Jews over Babylon? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is the sovereignty of God, even though these people had been exiled because of their own disobedience and lack of faith, God provides for them. Yes. And in any group of people like this, where he's working out his own promised judgment on them because of their corporate apostasy, there are still individual believers, and he honors them, and he teaches them and protects them. After these Chaldeans point out to Nebuchadnezzar that these three Jews are not worshiping, what's Nebuchadnezzar's response? 
He was furious and he, he said to bring them to him. And then he gave them a second chance. Isn't that interesting? It's <laughs> Maybe you like, misunderstood. Yeah. It was very repetitive. I don't know how they could have. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. But it does make you wonder if Nebuchadnezzar thought twice about his own murderous rage. Like, oh, no, these are my men and they're serving me well. Oh, interesting. Because he recognized who they were. So after he offers them the second chance, okay, we're going to try this again. And if you obey this time, fine. But if you don't, you're going into this furnace. He says, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You know what? That is a sign of insanity. No kidding. Because this man had just previously, and I don't know how much time has passed, but he just told Daniel, your God is the God of gods. So right there, Mm -hmm. he's upset that they're not worshiping his gods. Yeah. But Daniel's God is the God of gods. And then he tells them that your God is the Lord of kings. He's he's the boss. Yeah. Big God. <laughs> and then he says to these men, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? If there was any other line more compelling to support McGee's opinion that this was rebellious, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I agree. This to me is... The proof. Put the halo on this yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Emoji. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. He knew. He knew. And he's exalting himself over God. It's an incredible act of arrogance and actually, like you said, mental illness. This is really crazy. Mm -hmm. And it helps you understand what's going to come next in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Yeah. Because he continues to exalt himself over the God he knows is doing what no one else can do. So what do the three men say? This is great. Talk about healthy boundaries. (laughs) They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. That's one of my favorite lines. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) They have no fear of man. Yeah. And clearly they are respectful, law-abiding people or they wouldn't have been in the position they were in. Exactly. They were not anarchists. No. They weren't in some kind of covert battle against Babylon. No, they're serving Babylon. They're doing exactly what God told them to do, but they have this God that they cannot betray and who they fear far more than any man or king. After they say, we don't need to give you an answer, they go on to say, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he does not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Yeah, they make very clear that if God doesn't rescue them, it is not because he isn't able to. He is able. And they state that he will. They do. He will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he does not, let it be known that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image. So isn't it fascinating that they make it really, really clear that they're not serving God because he will deliver them, because he's giving them special power, because he's proving he's the powerful God. They're serving him because he is God and they know and trust him. Even if he doesn't deliver them from that furnace, they're not worshiping the God of Babylon. And this is a great pattern that we can refer to. You know, Elizabeth Enrig always talks about when you're trying to understand a topic in Scripture, you look for patterns in the Bible. And I would argue this is a pattern. 
pattern of how we deal with miracles. We don't command them. We don't command God to do miracles. We don't command angels to do miracles. They didn't command it. They said, He's able. Yes. And then they submitted themselves to what they knew God wanted of them. And that was to bow down to no other images or no other gods. That's the point we can take to the bank. We know who God is. We know He brought us to life through believing in His Son. We know that this God of gods that Nebuchadnezzar also knew was God of gods, this God of gods is worth our loyalty, and it was worth the loyalty to these three men of even risking their lives in that furnace. It wasn't about the miracle. It was about God. And if you don't know this God personally, If you haven't trusted Him and experienced the reality of being born again and filled with His Spirit so that you know you have eternal life and that you've passed from death to life, if you don't know that you are the son or daughter of God, if you don't know that you can call Him your Father, you can know that. You can know that Jesus came, Almighty God, in mortal flesh, and He lived a perfect human life but he died on the cross and shed innocent human blood to pay for all of your sin and mine. And when you recognize that there's nothing you can do that can take you out of his care when you have trusted him, and when you recognize that this God is sovereign over all other things, all other powers, all other political powers, all other gods, and you bow the knee and ask him to forgive you of your sin, you will be born again, and you will know God as your Father. He died for you. He was buried. He was raised on the third day to give you His life. And when you trust Him, you're eternally secure, and you can face anything, even a fiery furnace, even an unpredictable world with unpredictable political leaders. You can face anything with confidence because you are eternally safe with your Father. If you have any reactions or thoughts about the book of Daniel as we walk through this together, we would love to hear from you. Also, if you have any questions for us, you can write to us, formeradventist at gmail.com. And join us next week as we finish up chapter three of Daniel. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.